Welcome to How to Split a Toaster, a divorce podcast about saving your relationships from True Story FM. Today, all rise. The district court of the most honorable toaster is now in session. Welcome to the show, everybody. I'm Seth Nelson, and as always, I'm here with my good friend, Pete Wright. The appeal process in family court can be confusing and a bit mysterious. Today, we're going to shed some light on the process. What is an appeal? What does an appellate judge do? What lies behind the scenes in the appellate court? To help us out, we have Judge Matt Lucas, appellate court judge in the Florida 2nd District Court of Appeals. Your Honor, Judge Lucas, welcome to the toaster. Thank you for having me. Great to be here. Judge, uh, really great to to meet you, to talk to you. I have so many questions. I understand you have a brief preamble before we ask the hard-hitting questions that this show is known for. Before I get hit with cross-examination, uh, just a kind of man- quick mandatory disclaimer. Um, I'm looking forward to today's discussion, but whatever uh, is discussed today is just my personal views. Um just to uh, to talk with uh, some good friends here about some legal issues. Nothing that I say uh, constitutes legal advice, nor should it be construed as any reflection upon how either I or any of my colleagues on my court might rule on a particular judicial issue. That was a great show. All right. Well, thanks for being here. Thank you. It's been a pleasure, gentlemen. Seems like you've never said that before. Yeah, that was great. Yeah, awesome. I My first uh, hard-hitting uh, question, how does it feel to be interviewed by a Golden Panther award-winning high school graduate. Honestly, I was curled up earlier uh, because I just did not feel worthy to be on this podcast. Um, it, it is a source of constant irritation to me um, that Seth Nelson got a Golden Panther from HB Plant High School, and I never even got considered for a Golden Panther award at HB Plant High School. But um, passes, passes, nothing that can be done. Now he's sitting on the second district court of appeals and I call him your honor. So yeah, my, how the tables have turned. (laughs) That's right. So at least I'd call it a draw. (laughs) People got a peak when they got a peak, Seth. (laughs) Okay. We are here to discuss what is going on with uh, the appeals process. What is it? What is it? What does it mean to to go and and appeal a, a, a um, you know a family uh, trial case a divorce case and we there it seems like a process that is shrouded in mystery and um, and so we want to clarify for folks who had a uh, a challenging divorce process we thought who better to do it than give us the perspective of the appeals process than uh, our, our our now appeals court. Uh, judiciary correspondent, uh, uh, Judge Matt Lucas. So do you want to start, uh, Judge, and tell us a little bit about about the appeals court? Like, what is it that you do? A lot of folks um, like to use sports metaphors when uh, describing what judges do. It's not a perfect analogy, not a perfect metaphor, but it, it's a it's a good working one. And, and one of the ones uh, that you may recall hearing on on some uh, from some prior jurists is the, the judge as umpire role. Right, that uh, their job is to call the balls and strikes, apply the rules of the game, make sure that uh, that the that the rules are followed accurately. If we if we work with that metaphor, we would call the trial judges like the umpire or the referees on the field, making the calls in real time during the trials. What appeals courts do is kind of like video replay. 
where you've got a, a call that is being challenged and you want an independent set of eyes to look over what the play was and to rule whether or not the, the umpire on the field got it right or whether there was, um, I think they, they actually even have standards of review on these, some of these sporting events. Is there indisputable evidence, uh, that, that they got it wrong? Um, and if so, then, then the call gets overturned. It's a rough comparison, but that's, that's kind of what we're doing on the appeals court. We, as one of the district courts, one of the six district courts of appeal in Florida, are charged with reviewing what we call plenary appeals. That is any appeal from a trial, pretty much of any kind. If you don't like what happened, if you believe that the the ruling, uh, that there were rulings that were incorrect, that there was reversible error, you have a right to have that ruling, that trial reviewed by one of the district courts of appeal, depending upon where you live. Um, and we are charged with reviewing, reviewing that appeal. So that's what we do. It's, it's basically, um, if you want to think of it as sort of quality control slash, um, working through, uh, legal disputes, but most of all, uh, just simply getting a chance to, uh, to have an independent set of eyes, set of judges look over what happened in your case, uh, to make sure that, uh, that the rulings and the legal issues that were decided were within the parameters of what the law allows. Okay. So this is a question that is, that has come up before. And just to clarify, you're not essentially looking at the whole case, right? You're looking at how the rulings were handed down in the lower court? Kind of. So you're the judge of the judge or the the judge of how the law was applied? Well, what I say on that, Your Honor, if I may, see, I'm going to be very deferential, Pete. You're so polite, it's nauseating. Yeah, it's a little different than normal. Very out of character. (laughs) So, Pete, here's how I always explain it to a client. When we're going to trial, you don't get to appeal if you just don't like what the judge did. Okay. As in, he ruled against us, we lost. Okay. What you have to, the legal analysis is, did the judge make a mistake? Yeah, no, I, I think that's I think that's a good way of, of framing it. For 99% of cases, and for, for family law cases in particular, I can, I can say all the time, we don't just simply take the trial transcript or what have you and just, you know, kind of just start plowing through it and say, okay, can I find, can I find a problem here? Can I find a problem? Rather, we leave it to the lawyers or the litigants if they're, if they're representing themselves to tell us what they believe the issues in the case are that, that need to be reviewed. And that's literally called what we call them issues on appeal. And there might be one or two big ones. There might be four, five, six, seven issues. Um, but we put it, to the to the lawyers and to the parties to tell us what was what were the problems here with the legal rulings that were handed down in your case um, that requires us to look at those rulings and look at the record that surrounds those rulings. When I look at an, a, a court, when I imagine the court, I imagine the Supreme Court. Right? I get, I see all the. T- do you work like with other people uh, or other judges to evaluate these things, or do you have a docket of your own cases so you're deciding alone how the law was sort of adjudicated? That's a great question. So we uh, on the appeals court. And uh, similar to the Supreme Court, um, we do work in groups on all cases. Um, now, at the district court of appeal level, it's a three-judge panel. There are uh, presently 15 judges on my court, the second district court of appeal, and we are randomly assigned in panels of three to the different cases. 
we review those cases each individually and then come together and conference the cases to talk about what uh, what each judge thinks um, ought to happen in each of those cases. But it's, it is always three judges um, that are reviewing the case. In rare exceptional cases, we go on bonk, uh, which is just a, a fancy term that means this is a case where something really big has happened, usually something along the line of where we might need to recede from one of our prior cases or where we've got a big conflict going on in the law where all 15 judges will weigh in on a, on a single case. But those don't come up very. We get maybe one, uh, one or two of those a year. And the hardest thing about the unbunk hearing, Pete, like imagine you got 15 judges is where they decide to order lunch. It's it's unbelievably difficult. Seth has seen behind the curtain. Opinions are are very strong. Weak opinions strongly held about lunch orders. Mm. Uh, so you also said something a second ago that that was a little bit triggering. I, you should know. I reached out to my uh, colleagues and followers on the internet on the platform Mastodon, and I told them I am having a conversation on a podcast with an appellate court judge. What questions would you like? To, to know the answer to. And I, most of my friends are buffoons, Judge. Like, there's just no, most of them, I'm not, I'm surprised they can actually read. But one of them said, is it possible to handle the appeals process myself? And I thought that was really interesting because my assumption was absolutely not. Somebody is going to be taking your case to, like, to the appeals court, but you can represent yourself before this panel of three judges? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, no, we, we have pro se litigants. We actually provide um, on our court website uh, a number of resources and materials, including um, a section uh, called practice pointers. Um, the appellate section of the Florida Bar put together a pro se handbook. Um, I believe it's available on the Florida Bar's website, although I may be mistaken, maybe on the Florida Supreme Court's website. It's basically a handbook for folks that, for whatever reason, maybe you can't afford a lawyer, maybe you just prefer to, to handle the appeal yourself. We allow it, we welcome it. We do, however, subject pro se litigants to the same rules of the road that apply to, to lawyers. So, and there's, there's a number of technical requirements that go into appellate advocacy, um, especially most of what we do is in writing, it's in brief writing. Um, and there are a good number of um, requirements as to how we call them briefs, even though they're pretty long, how these briefs um, are supposed to be structured, how a record is compiled, how you frame your arguments. Um, so what I would say is you can absolutely represent yourself in an appeal. Would it be a good idea to talk to a lawyer that has uh, appellate experience or can at least get up to speed on uh, on your appeal uh, to help you with that? Y yes, absolutely. Because it's it's a if you're not a lawyer, it's a challenge. Even if you're a lawyer and you don't do many appeals, it's a challenging area. Um, but for someone that that does not regularly practice law, it it can it can be tricky. It can be a challenge. So, and the thing about that, Pete, is I stress to my clients that an appeal is a whole new process. It's a whole new case. It's going to get a appellate case number. There are different time frames. But the thing to understand is this is not a second bite of the apple. There is not a jury box or a witness stand in the appellate courtroom. You are only up there where you, so if you're the 
a poem. That means you don't like what happened below. Think ant, moving forward, walking. And the opposite side is the appellee. Leave it alone. <laughs> okay? So if you're the one saying there's been a mistake, you write your brief. You submit it timely. There's all these technical requirements. And then the appellee says they get to do a reply brief and say why they're wrong. And then you can do a response. And you can request that you get to go in front of the judges and argue your case, but they don't have to grant that request. So it could be all done on paper, or you could be granted what's called oral argument. And that's what you see happen in the Supreme Court and at different appellate court levels. And you go to court and you start arguing your brief, but it's more of a conversation. The, the judges will interrupt you to ask you questions about the things that they are struggling with or need more clarification on so they can make what they believe to be the right ruling. Yeah, that's 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 it in a nutshell. Just a little background about how we decide cases. Um, Seth mentioned oral arguments uh, versus deciding cases just on the briefs. In terms of volume, the vast majority of cases we're going to decide is just going to be on the briefs. It's just going to be based upon uh, the written uh, advocacy that um, appellants or petitioners, appellees and respondents have provided us. And that's the vast majority of cases compared to those where someone has requested oral argument. Our court has traditionally been fairly liberal granting oral argument um, if somebody requests it. Um, but just because of the mix of our caseload, we, we don't get a huge number of, of requests for oral arguments. Typically, when we do, though, a typical oral argument document uh, docket that I'm going to have will be ma- one or two criminal cases, a um, couple of civil cases. And I might get a family law case uh, for oral argument um, every now and then. But uh, most of the cases are just going to be decided on the briefs. Can you talk a little bit about how and maybe this is a question for you, Seth, but, but how you you make that transition? Because if I remember right, Seth, you don't do appeals. We do very few in the office. We have a couple issues that we might appeal or defend on appeal, but I typically don't do appellate work. We usually farm it out, but we have some lawyers in our office that like doing it and love the research and writing. And so they would be bringing that up. So I will not mention in this podcast, any cases that may or may not be appealed because Judge Lucas may or may be assigned to that case and I wouldn't want him to have to recuse himself. So from your perspective, uh, Judge, when you get a case, is there, uh, I don't know, this this is probably an, an unfair question, but you're getting a completely new case from a completely new attorney and, you know, you're expected to, like, is there... Um, continuity of cases, right? Like the continuity of case. When somebody's upset about how it how it went, how how impactful is it to have the original team involved mm. in an appeal? Does that make sense? Am I even asking that right? Very good question. That's a great question. Basically is can a trial lawyer do an appellate case? Is it better to have a new set of eyes? So uh, in typical lawyerly fashion, I'll answer that by saying it depends. <laughs> here's here's what I have I've seen in the time that I've been. I've, so I've served as a trial judge previously and I've ser- I serve as an appellate judge now. When I was in private practice, I did a fair amount of um, trial work as a commercial litigator, but I also did uh, a good amount of appellate work um, as well for, for the firm that I was at. What I would say is that by virtue of being a good and talented trial lawyer, 
that does not necessarily translate into a good and talented appellate lawyer. The skills, although they're both legal advocacy, the way you go about it um, is very different in appellate court. It's a different style of advocacy. It's the focus is completely different uh, because, you know, when, when Seth takes a case to trial, he's got a a judge, uh, you know, clean slate where he's trying to persuade him or her um, as an initial determination, a whole bunch of facts, a whole bunch of uh, legal issues that he wants decided in his client's favor. What he does in trying to persuade that judge is very different than what he would need to do to try to convince three judges that the trial judge that heard his case got it wrong on some legal issue. See, here, Pete, here's what happened. Okay. He could have said that he got it right, which means I would have been defending, which means I would have won in the lower court. Judge Lucas is like, Mr. Nelson just lost in the lower court. Wow, that just slipped out, too. My bad. (laughs) (laughs) Of course, of course. If he got it right as Appalee, he would be, he would be trying to, he would be trying to convince a panel. It does beg the question, though, how often do you overturn based on the law in an appeal? Like how <laughs> how bad are the lower courts? Is that another way to ask that question? No, they're, they are they are doing a great job. We are we are blessed with a very good trial bench um, in, in the second district. Um, I can't give you a firm percentages, but I but I can I can tell you it's 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 very infrequent. Do you want to be defending the ruling? Not arguing the judge made a mistake just the 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 way the law is set up pete because sometimes it's like yeah the lower court made a mistake and by the way mr nelson you invited that mistake by what you did in advocating so when you invite the mistake we're not going to hold that against the judge right or the judge made a mistake but it was something called harmless error right it wouldn't like change the outcome of the case right Exactly. The quarterback, maybe he was just outside of bounds and you pushed him a little bit, but he didn't fall. He didn't get hurt, right? Yeah, it was an error. It was a foul, but nothing really happened. So let's move on. Or or one we'll see sometimes where the appellate lawyer or if it was the trial lawyer acting as appellate counsel, um, now that now that they're on appeal, they'll um, they'll catch an issue. It'll, it'll, you know, they'll do the research and they'll realize, oh gosh, this was, this was an issue. Um, and they'll, they'll brief it out. The problem is they never raised it to the trial judge. And so we have a, we have something in, in Pell, in Pell land we call preservation of error. Did you preserve that issue? Did you give the trial judge a chance to get it right? Did you bring it to his or her attention to make a ruling in the first instance? And if you didn't, for, a great many issues, um, you're going to be foreclosed from from being able to argue that on appeal. But but going back to your to your question, Pete, can trial lawyers be good appellate lawyers? Um, they can if they can make that transition. And I will tell you, if they're able to make that transition and do effective appellate advocacy, sometimes they can actually have a little tiny advantage um, on an appellate lawyer because no one knows the record as well as the trial lawyer that argued it. Um, so it's I'll tell you what I'll see frequently in oral arguments. I'll see the appellate lawyer who will get up to the podium and argue, but their trial counsel will be right at their right hand uh, because they remember they know exactly where to look if there's a question on the record that maybe the appellate lawyer doesn't recall. And Pete, let's be clear of what the record is. It's all the evidence that was submitted and accepted by the trial judge. It's the transcript of a hearing. So if you have a trial that goes for a full day, eight hours, that's a lot of testimony. 
And when you read a transcript, inevitably, it's cold, it's hard, it's on a piece of paper or on a screen, and the emotion doesn't come through. And so you really, as a trial lawyer, when you're reading a transcript for appellate purposes, have to really hone in and like, this is what it says, as opposed to this is what I thought happened in court. It just translates differently. I imagine if if there is a criticism of the appeals process, it's that the idea that we're going into an appeal with a panel of three judges who are, uh, let's say, bi- potentially biased to protect the rulings of the lower court judge. Uh, that would be essentially the buffer to that to that criticism that, you know, we're we're just going off the cold transcript, the cold, you know, all of the, the everything that was submitted as, as as a document to the court, because otherwise I imagine that's an easy area for people to critique. I, I can understand why folks um, who maybe aren't practicing lawyers or, or aren't familiar with, uh, with with the process might have that uh, that impression. Here's what I'll say that um, I have uh, written opinions reversing former colleagues of mine um, and um, gone out to lunch with them later. And that's just everyone understands. Trial judges understand, um, much like umpires on the field understand part of the process, the legal process that we promise to deliver um, is that everyone gets this right of review. And that we're 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 none of us are infallible. So there is a there's always a chance, and trial judges uh, recognize this all the time. There's always a chance that you just got something wrong, or maybe the you know you you just misread something, or the the you didn't you weren't up to speed on a on a on an obscure facet of the law that just happened to bubble up in real time um, in your case. And you're right there as a trial judge. You have to make that call right there and then call it a ball or strike. Um, that's why the uh, the appellate court is there. And then sometimes what will occasionally arise, there'll be a question about what the law is. There'll be an open question like we don't have a settled ruling on this issue for in Florida or in this district about how these cases or this particular issue is supposed to be decided. Trial judges understand 100%. Certainly I did when I was one and, and my trial judge colleagues um, understand that when they've got to do the best they can with that, but it's always subject to, to review. So we are always respectful to our, to our brothers and sisters on the trial bench, but everyone understands that part of the process is we might say you got it wrong. Um, and that happens every now and then. Trial judges hate it. <laughs> <laughs> they hate getting overturned. <laughs> and, yeah. and from a litigation perspective, it's really hard to go back in front of that trial judge that I just appealed and I got their bosses to say they got it wrong. Yeah. And that's actually one of the questions from one of my buffoon friends I mentioned earlier. What happens if I win on appeal? Does that mean I get a whole new trial or does the appeals court just order certain changes? Do they just make things happen? We call that in appellate uh, practice or in, in the appellate process, we call that what do you do on remand? Whenever a case goes from a trial court to an appellate court or returns from an appellate court to a trial court, 
we have a que- we have an issue of all right, which court has jurisdiction? When the appellate court takes jurisdiction of the case, at that point, there's very little that the trial judge can can continue to do on that case. It's now in the appellate court's hands. There's still some things they can do, uh, but but the the prior legal determinations that that trial judge made, um, for the most part, those are set in stone. Um, and so now it's up to the appellate court to review that. Once we finish that review, if we've issued an opinion, whether it's affirming, whether it's reversing in part, whether it's you know complete reversal, then the the question arises: Okay, now what? Great question. Interestingly enough, it's a question that a lot of it's the, not an easy answer. It's not an easy <laughs> answer. No, it isn't. In fact, uh, one of the lengthier opinions that um, I had to write dealt with. What do you do on remand? Do you get a, you know, Seth used the term the second bite at the apple. Do you get an all new trial or um, are you stuck with some of the stuff, some of the rulings, but maybe just tweak a few things at the judge or does the judge get to redecide issues, but you're stuck with the, with the prior record that was put before that trial judge? The answer to that, once again, I'm going to go back to the fallback. It depends. Um, lawyers, we put it on lawyers, they need to advocate what they believe ought to happen on remand. Right. So, Pete, this is a big deal, is if that lawyers get wrong all the time. I start all of my arguments with, here's the problem. Here's the rule or statute or case law that I'm, I think applies. Here's the solution. Here's what I want you to do. And appellate lawyers are supposed to do the same thing. They're supposed to go up to the appellate court and say, the trial judge made this mistake and I want you to decide this and you do not have to send it back to the trial judge and here's why and here's the rule and here's the case law to support that. Or you say, I need you to send it back down to the trial judge and I want you to order the trial judge to do X. And sometimes when things come back down, And now you're in front of the trial judge and you're reading the opinion of the appellate court. It might be unclear what they're instructing the trial judge to do. And you don't get to just call up the appellate court judge and says, what do you mean by this? You're stuck with that piece of paper. Yeah. It's hard. Yeah. Sometimes the answer is kind of self-evident. So, for example, in a, you know, in a a jury trial, for example, if um, if a lawyer um you know, in a criminal case, if they, you know, they uh, they mentioned that uh, the criminal defendant refused to answer questions when he or she was taken into custody, it's a fifth, you know, fifth amendment violation. They got that before the jury judge. We need a whole new trial. Well, what what, what are you going to do on remand in that case? You're going to order a new trial. But where it can get where it can get tricky is, um, for example, I, I'm hypothesizing here in a, in a family law case. Um, suppose you had a really long five day, five days is still a pretty long trial, right, Seth? Yeah, pretty long. Yeah. Let's, let's say you had a five day long trial where, um, there's a big, big dispute about, um, equitable distribution and alimony. You're talking about assets, you're talking about debts. And at the end of all of that evidence, the trial judge issues a whole bunch of rulings, makes a bunch of findings. And it turns out that a couple of the marital properties maybe shouldn't have been valued what they were, or maybe, um, you know, something uh, really wasn't marital property. So that's going to throw off all the equitable distribution. Question, does that mean that you need to have a whole new trial and put all of that evidence back before that judge and go through basically 
the very long process that everyone has, the grinding long process that everyone's already been through? Or is it such that on remand, you can just simply tell the judge, hey, if you're if you're able to reconstruct from the record, um, but just follow these principles and, and, and uh, recreate your um you know, your equitable distribution scheme in line with what the, with what we're saying the law is, um, that might be sufficient. Or sometimes might even leave it to the trial judge a little bit. Sometimes we'll say, uh, occasionally we'll, we'll tell the trial judge, if you need to order more proceedings, you, you can do so. But if you feel like you've got enough based upon the, the evidence that was presented. So, so Pete, what happens sometimes, though, is you're back in front of the trial judge. Let's say you've tried a five-day case and the appellate court says they valued the house on the wrong date. They valued the business on the wrong date, and those are the only two mistakes the judge made. Well, the the trial judge might have what's called a case management conference and guess all together and say, okay, these were the two problems. Are we going to reopen up everything, or can we get an agreement that we're going to just try these two issues to save time and money, right? And depending on how it's seen, he might give argument on what the appellate court tell him to do. And, you know, you, you, you do want to try to streamline this as we've talked over and over again uh, a lot that, you know, every penny you spend on a lawyer is another penny that you could have put towards settlement. Well, this this next question from the um, from the buffoons, I think, is actually a really interesting one in in the in the the sort of guise of streamlining the process. Right. If I appeal, will it automatically stay enforcement of the divorce judgment or can enforcement continue while the appeal is pending? And uh, I would add who who is who decides that if it's a decision? That sounds like a great question for a lawyer to answer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Let me go get the appellate law- lawyer over here. <laughs> so you have to file a motion to stay with the trial court. Oh, okay. All right. So that that's all handled at the trial at the trial court level. Right. And then the judge doesn't stay it. And then you're like, I don't agree with that either, judge. And then you take it to the appellate lawyer. But that's why Judge Lucas was saying a lot of this is very technical. So and there's time frames associated with it. We get a lot of um motions to stay where um they didn't file the motion before the trial court. And we, you know, we basically got a form order telling them, no, you gotta, you gotta go back to the trial court and ask them to, to, to stay at first. Okay. All right. I have a number of uh, uh, run through questions that actually indicate that uh, my colleagues on the internet did not understand what an appeals uh, judge does. However, I think they're great questions, and I, I think our, our audience might like to hear your perspective on <laughs> I'm these. A, I'm uh, a little afraid if, now. If you, if you will indulge me. <laughs> of course. Do you get offended if people appeal your rulings? And... <laughs> Corollary, should I avoid making eye contact with you when my appeal is heard if you made the original judgment? That seems like a rat's nest of questions, but interesting. Okay, so let me take the second one first, because that's that's easier to do. If I was the trial judge, much as I would like to be on the panel that reviews my my rulings when I was a trial judge, I don't get to. Um, So, for example, when I got on the appeals, when I first got appointed to the Second District Court of Appeal, all of the cases... Um, I was automatically recused from any case that anybody take of any of my prior rulings. When I was a trial judge, if someone would tell me, hey, lawyers would do this very respectfully, but, you know, judge, um, I need to put on this evidence to, to, in order to round out my record because I, I want to take this issue up on appeal. No offense taken whatsoever. Again, we, we all understand that's the process. Um, you have a right to do that. And I'm, I at least would never take offense at, at somebody, 
appealing me. Because you know what he's thinking? He's thinking, good luck. <laughs> good <laughs> no, luck. No, I got no, it right. No, 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 Mr. No. Nelson, you can appeal all you want. <laughs> <laughs> he just carries around a white marble and a black marble because that's where we are right now. <laughs> now, in terms of where I'm at now, yeah, I, I can be appealed. Um, so if I write an opinion and uh, I get a colleague or two to join to join along in, in where I'm landing on a case and somebody believes um, that it conflicts with another district court of appeals decision or it conflicts with a Florida Supreme Court decision, they have a right to uh, to put that before the Florida Supreme Court. And I've had a few cases where the Florida Supreme Court has reviewed has has graded my papers. Um, so it's, it's a, an ongoing process, uh, all the way on down the line. And, uh, no, I, I don't take any offense at that, uh, whatsoever in oral argument. Uh, I encourage making eye contact, but that's just my personality. I like, you know, people that don't make eye contact with me, make me a little bit nervous. So I, I like it when people are looking me in the eye. Uh, it's not like we're going in the octagon together. Um, it's, <laughs> it, it's, it's a very uh, congenial, friendly, uh, professional process. Okay. In, in all in all candor, Judge, in your long career on the bench, have you ever wanted to appeal one of your own rulings? Hmm. Here's what I'd say. I don't know if I'd ever want to appeal any of my rulings. I, <laughs> I, I like to think there, there's an old saying, I may be in error, but I'm never in doubt. Uh, it's, it's an old trial judge saying. Um, I, I always like to think that, that I got it right. Now, let me share with this before Judge Lucas finishes his thought here. <laughs> I've tried cases in front of Judge Lucas, just one or two, in front of him when he was on the family law bench in Hillsborough County. And he would sit there during trial and be listening intently, making rulings on evidentiary issues, controlling the courtroom, and typing, and typing and typing. And at the end of a full-day trial, Pete, we rest our cases. We make closing arguments. He would say it's under advisement, which means he's going to go think about it before he makes his final ruling. And then he says, I'll be back in an hour. And he would go into chambers. We would all go stand in the hall or take a break or grab something to eat real quick and come back. And he would pronounce his rulings detailed, fact-based, applying the law and have a final judgment written. Okay. This is very rare and extremely impressive. Well, and I, so on a personal level, I want to leap on that because I'm also kind of a productivity nerd, uh, Judge. How do you how do you do that? How do you keep all that stuff straight? What do you what you've got to have a system? Well, when I was a when I was a family law judge, what what Seth was describing was was the the process I liked to employ. That was more um, for me. It was kind of a survival mode. My my first couple of weeks, I had not done family law uh, before I became a family law judge. Um, and my first couple of weeks, I would try to just sort of hand write out notes like I would do, um, you know, in another division, um, and then maybe make a ruling. What I quickly realized was that the number of rulings that family law judges have to make compared to other divisions, um, is just enormous. And the docket that they have, it's pretty heavy. Um, so you're going to have a, tr you know, three, four trials in a week. And you're going to try to to remember all of the details um, that happened and then reconstruct that in a judgment later. For me, it was I found it worked better uh, because I was a much faster typist than I was than I am a writer. Um, it would work much better uh, for me to just simply be typing impressions, typing what my thoughts are on each of the witnesses, what the witnesses said in real time. 
while gauging, you know, kind of whether I believe them or not, whether, you know, whether there were issues with, with, you know, what they were telling me and then go back and go back to my office and, and put it all together and think about it and, and, and try to put it in, in a semblance of an order. And that worked, uh, pretty well. You know, the, the challenge, family law judges really do, I'll, I'll put this out there, um, in Florida, especially, they have a challenging job. Not only is the 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 subject matter of what's brought before them hard. I mean, it's you're you're seeing a lot of people on their worst day, um, but the legal requirements that Florida statutes impose on them in terms of the length and breadth of the rulings they have to make it's it's unlike any other area of the law. Um, so it's um, all family law judges have to have to provide detailed rulings uh, when they when they have a, a trial. What is the strangest thing you have seen someone appeal like, and this has to come from someplace quite specific, like fighting over a cat or beanbag chair collection, for example? What's the strangest thing that has gotten an appeal to your court? You know, I haven't seen any particularly strange family law appeals. I, I mean, usually the things that, that come up on appeal for family law, if they're if they're going the full distance to to write up briefs, it's it's going to be about kids or money, uh, something along those lines. I do recall when I was a family law judge, probably the strangest uh, piece of property um, that somebody was arguing over. Um, they, they had it was it was strange. They had gone through this really lengthy mediation. This couple, they had worked out almost everything, but there were like seven items. At one point, I remember asking them because these seven items were just so eclectic and just random. I asked them, I was like, did you all basically just go a full day of mediation and you just ran out of gas? I mean, you just, you just didn't have anything. And they, they both nodded. They're just like, they just said, yeah. They just, these yeah. are the last seven things on the list that they just stopped. Just, we can't do this anymore. Can you please just valiant? And one of them was um, a commemorative university ashtray that turned out to be broken. Well, that seems easy. They each get hacked. <laughs> I mean, come on, judge. <laughs> Fixed. Next. <laughs> right. But I, I do recall that one. That was, uh, yeah. That's funny. Uh, Seth, what are, what are we missing here? I mean, we have the, the, the luxury of having our fair uh, judge here. Have we, have we covered everything you feel like we need to cover uh, about the appeals process? Yeah, I think the main thing that Judge Lucas has really brought a light to is that this isn't where you get to just go up and like argue again. It's really very technical. It's really did the judge at the lower court at the trial level make a mistake. The one thing that I know he's aware of from doing appellate law is there's an interesting dynamic when I try a case, let's say, and I lose and my client wants to appeal and I send it to very good appellate lawyers in town. And frankly, I think some of the lawyers I send to is some of the best in the state. And I tell them, if I made a mistake that didn't preserve something for appeal, or I didn't get the record straight, or I didn't object properly, call me out on it. You're representing my client and your client. And if I'm to blame, that client deserves to know. So sometimes when you give it to a different lawyer, you run that risk. Obviously, if it was just you, you're going to be like, oh, I didn't make that mistake, or maybe you're not as forthcoming as you should be. So that's one aspect that I think is interesting in the appellate world. The other aspect is there's, there's just all different levels of um, deference that's given to the trial judge. It could be abuse of discretion, which means reasonable people can differ, 
maybe I differ on this record, but the trial judge got to make the first call. We're sticking with that call. Then there's de novo review, which means Judge Lucas and his colleagues can look at it brand new. They're just looking at the record like a review of a contract. What's on the paper is on the paper, right? And because they're the higher level judge, they can totally throw it out. So it's very technical. It's a very interesting area of the law. And the last point that wasn't really brought up just a little bit, Judge Lucas, unlike the the trial level where the family law judges in family law for two or three years doing that case is those cases every single day. At the appellate level, Judge Lucas, correct me if I'm wrong, you could have a probate, estate, and trust case one second, and the next one could be a criminal case, and the next one could be a family law case, and the next one could be a contract dispute. Yep. We, uh, we, we become, we all become general practitioners when, uh, when we come on the, the appellate court. In case, in terms of caseload, a little over, probably about 65% of our cases are criminal. Um, so it, it's, it's heavily, it's a little heavier skewed to, to criminal law, but it is, it is everything. It's, it's like Seth said, we get probate, we get car crash cases, contract disputes, divorce cases, um, termination of parental rights cases, a lot of different kinds of criminal cases. Judge, how many cases do you have? Mm. Right now, we're a little bit, um, a little bit under two thousand, um, little under two thousand in terms of court wide, court wide. That's not, that's not how many I, I have personally. Okay, uh, I just lost all the air, got sucked out of my chest just for a second there. <laughs> yeah, but do the math on that. Yeah, two thousand, right? They have fifteen judges. Yep. Now they in panels of three, right? But if you divide that by three, right, a third is gonna because you need three judges, right? That's over 600 cases. Yeah, we're, we're, and this is actually, we're actually at a little bit of a lull uh, with the, with the less than 2,000. Usually it's, it's close to like into the, in the 3,000 range, even 4,000 range. Um, historic, we, we look at our case numbers over time. Um, so that's actually even a, at a little bit of a, of a lull, believe it or not. Although we're start we're, we are now starting to see an uptick. COVID kind of shut things down. And now that uh, all the trial lawyers like Seth are, are uh, getting their cases uh, back on track and, and tried again. Uh, we're we're starting to see our appeals ticking up uh, in response to that. Sure. So, Judge, what's your favorite three letters in the alphabet? PCA. I knew it. Stands for pure curiam affirmed, and that means that the trial judge got everything right, and we don't need to say any more. Oh, I like that. So, how how long does it take you to? Well, it's, I, I was going to say how long does it take you to get there, but that, that's not. That's not really the question. About how long does it take you once a case, once you say, okay, the 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 floodgates are open, this particular case is is hit the dock, we've got our three judges. How long does it take you to process a case? So we we work these things. We've we've got this down to like a machine almost in terms of cases come in, notice of appeals filed, case number gets assigned, then there's a briefing schedule where the appellant is going to file the first initial brief. The appellee will file an answer brief, and the appellant then, if they wish, can file a reply brief in response to that answer brief. Those then get uh, randomly they get randomly assigned to the different three judge panels. We shepherd them into groups um, and decide kind of a batch of them at a time. We call it, you know, each each one being a docket. We we break them up into two kinds where there's oral argument or oral argument waived. A typical docket for oral arguments we might decide four or five, at most six cases in a single sitting for oral argument. For oral argument waived, we'll typically have somewhere between eh, 15, 20, 22 cases that we'll decide at a time. 
in terms of length of time, it's it's a few months uh, because the briefing the briefing part by itself takes a few months. But then even after that, we've got to read all this stuff. We have to go through all the record. We have to make sure you know we're checking all the case citations that that you know the case law we're being told is is what the what the parties report that it says. In terms of the decision making process, once all that's done, once all the briefings done, once all the readings done, once we've gone over the record. The the decision making process typically doesn't take terribly long. For for most cases, the three judges on a panel, we're going to look at that. We're going to kind of land in the same place and say, yeah, this 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 looks like it was it was done uh, properly. There's no legal error here. Occasionally, occasionally, we'll get a case where we might have split decision, where one judge disagrees with uh, with one or two other judges on the panel. Or where somebody uh, just believes that, uh, you know, we, we need to kind of stake out new ground here. Those can end up taking a little time. Um, so you might, you know, you might end up having to wait 9, 10, 11 months uh, for your appeal to be decided if, uh, if the panel is really struggling through. Um, if there's an opinion to be written, that's going to, ex- that's going to also uh, extend the length of time because every opinion that comes out of our court, not only does the authoring judge write it and his or her two colleagues have to sign off on it and agree and agree with it. Every judge in our court is going to see that opinion before it goes out the door. We uh, release these in batches uh, so that everybody can get a look at it to make sure, all right, we're, we're getting it right on these. And, and those are called slip opinions, Judge? Slip opinion. Yeah, right. we, we said that the opinion's in slips, which means that it's been distributed to, all, to the entire court. All the judges and their staff attorneys are looking it over and making sure, um, yeah, this is this is a good work product for this court to, to release. And Pete, it's not uncommon for spouses of appellate court judges to tell their spouse, you are no longer allowed to read slip opinions in bed. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Which I was a bit of a turf war, I meant. <laughs> <laughs> But it, yeah, it's a lot. Yeah, it's a lot. Yeah. It's incredible. Did you I, did? Was this your uh, career aspiration, Judge? Actually, no. It's ironically enough, if you would ask me in law school, what class did you hate the most? It was appellate advocacy. I hated that <laughs> class. Total irony that I, that I ended up here. But what I found was um, I ended up in private practice and I was one of the one of the one of those people that actually enjoy doing the reading and the research and the writing. And so naturally my partners uh, came to me and said, Hey, great. You're now great. You're now our appellate lawyer. So I kind of, kind of learned the, learned the process, found I enjoyed it. Basically uh, a lot of stars lined up in the right place some good opportunities open up. And I've been very blessed uh, to be in the, the position I'm in now. Cause I've got, I mean, to me, I've got the greatest job, legal job you can have. Uh, I love what I do. Well, especially because you you failed at at uh, the the first rule of careerism is always suck at the job you don't want. <laughs> right, right. Now we would be remiss not to ask you, Judge. Do you have a side gig? Do you ever write things other than appellate opinions? Do I, do I write that? Yes. Yeah. So I've <laughs> I've got a I've got a, a a habit that I haven't kicked yet. I I really do love writing, not just about legal stuff, but I also got a little a little fiction gig on the side where um, I like to write uh, speculative fiction novels. Uh, I got a couple of small publishers that uh, that put them out, um, and that's that's a lot of fun. It's a great way to vent all of that. All of that creative juices that you just cannot put into a legal opinion, but you really want to. Uh, I've got a great outlet for that, and uh, and it's it's 
it's a lot cheaper than playing golf. Uh, so I've, I've really enjoyed uh, doing that over the past few years. I'm, I'm on Amazon. Where do I go? So if you look, I, I go by my name, Matthew C. Lucas. If you look up author Matthew C. Lucas, um, I've got books out, uh, Yonder and Far, The Mountain. I uh, just got a new one, a novella out not too long ago called Look With Your Eyes, which is uh, set in North Florida. Um, so it's it's something I've been enjoying for for over a decade now and, and have had a little bit of success at it. So um, that's that's a great outlet uh, and a great hobby. His next, his, his next book is you know, hopefully going to come out short Jewish bald lawyer actually wins a case. <laughs> that That's the title I'm looking for. <laughs> but it takes place at the end of time. So be patient. <laughs> Number one bestseller. <laughs> New York Times, baby, here we come. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Judge Lucas, you uh, thank you so much uh, for doing this with us today. It's just a real treat to just sit down with you and pepper you with, with uh, you know, stupid questions it's it's been a real pleasure <laughs> you you answer these stupid questions with panache and grace so we sure appreciate it they're great questions and i i really appreciate getting to answer them and, and getting to spend time with you all in your audience and thank you everybody for downloading and listening to this show we sure appreciate your time and your attention. Uh, if you have any questions, head over to howtosplitatoaster.com and click the Ask a Question, and we will take your question and we'll put it in our next listener questions episode. Sure, there's another one coming up at some point. Uh, they just, the questions keep piling in. So uh, thank you, every everybody, for doing this on behalf of the Honorable Judge Matt Lucas and Seth Nelson, America's favorite divorce attorney. I'm Pete Wright, and we'll catch you next time right here on How to Split a Toaster a divorce podcast about saving your relationships. How to Split a Toaster is part of the True Story FM podcast network, produced by Andy Nelson, music by T-Bless and the Professionals, and DB Studios. Seth Nelson is an attorney with NLG Divorce and Family Law with offices in Tampa, Florida. While we may be discussing family law topics, How to Split a Toaster is not intended to, nor is it providing legal advice. Every situation is different. If you have specific questions regarding your situation, please seek your own legal counsel with an attorney licensed to practice law in your jurisdiction. Pete Wright is not an attorney or employee of NLG Divorce and Family Law. Seth Nelson is licensed to practice law in Florida. 